0: Glazer, director of the China Power Project at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. In this episode of the China Power podcast, we're discussing Chinese policies toward minorities in the Xinjiang region, including the camps that are detaining Uyghur and Kazakh Muslims. We're going to focus first on the drivers of China's policies and then on the international community's response, including where countries have stepped up and where they have fallen short. And we'll also talk about what steps could be taken by the international community going forward. Over 13 million Uyghurs and Kazakhs live in the Xinjiang region of China, many of whom are Muslim. Since 2016, over 1 million from this population, some people think it's up almost 3 million, have been involuntarily placed in detainment camps as part of what Beijing has characterized as a counterterrorism campaign seeking to combat extremism. In 2020, the United States enacted the Uyghur Human Rights Policy Act, which subjects individuals in China who've contributed to inhumane treatment of Uyghurs to sanctions. However, the world remains divided over how to respond to what some observers are calling a crime against humanity or even genocide. To discuss China's policies in Xinjiang and policy options for the international community, I'm joined by Dr. Darren Beiler. Dr. Beiler is a postdoctoral fellow at the Center for Asian Studies at the University of Colorado Boulder, where he researches the dispossession of ethno-racial Muslim minorities through forms of surveillance and digital capitalism in China and in the global South. He's recently authored a very interesting working paper for the Penn Project on the future of U.S.-China relations titled, Human Rights in China, The Case of Xinjiang. So thanks for joining us today, Darren. Great. Happy to be here. Well, let's start just by talking about how China conceptualizes human rights. How does China's concept of human rights differ from how countries in the West see it? And what does this mean for those that are affected by this humanitarian crisis in Xinjiang?
1: That's a good question. So to understand how China conceptualizes human rights, we have to go back to the 1940s when the discourse first entered China. At that point, China was really coming under the influence of the Soviet Union. And so they really started to think about human rights from a socialist perspective, which means that human rights have to first consider basic needs, things like a right to livelihood, a right to food and shelter. And because China was quite poor, had large populations of people that were in a lot of poverty, they were really interested in providing those basic forms of social welfare. It didn't mean, though, that people would have a right to free speech, or rights to other kinds of minority protection. It was really about protecting the majority. And so over time, we saw this conceptualization really disproportionately affect minorities. And so it played out differently over time.
0: So the vast majority of people in China, are of the Han ethnicity. And yet, of course, there are a large number of minorities. Uyghur and Kazakhs are just two of those minorities. How are the minorities portrayed in relation to the Han majority? So there's a
1: range of ways that minorities are portrayed. Some minorities, ones that in Chinese are often characterized as the soft minorities, people from mostly Southwest China, are seen in a favorable way, and those are minorities that have assimilated much more so into the mainstream. They also can pass as Han in terms of their appearance, and they speak Chinese primarily as their first language. Other minorities, the ones that are often thought about as the hard minorities, which are Tibetans, and also the Uyghurs and Kazakhs, are seen as different, as oftentimes they're portrayed as backward, and that's coming from official state discourse. That they're lacking the sort of culture, the sort of knowledge of the Han majority, which is, you know, 1.3 billion people in China. On top of that, Kazakhs, because they practice Islam, are seen as even more suspicious than Tibetans who practice Buddhism. And that's because of the sort of stereotypes that have been associated with Islam, particularly over the last two decades.
0: So one of the most controversial things about these camps in Xinjiang is the fact that China claims that they are necessary because of a threat of domestic terrorism. And there certainly have been incidents of domestic terrorism that have been reported in China. 2014, there was a a knifing in the Kunming railway station. I recall there's been some car bombings in Beijing and Urumqi in 2013 and 2014. But a really controversial, I think, question is whether this domestic terrorism threat is so great that it warrants the extreme actions that have been taken. So I want to ask how you assess this threat of domestic terrorism. How real is it? And before the camps were built, what was China doing to deal with these threats that it perceived? So as I was
1: alluding to in response to the previous question, because Uyghurs and Kazakhs are Muslim, they've been portrayed differently. And that's really something that's come to the fore in the last two decades, since 2001. Prior to September 11, 2001, The discourse of terrorism did not exist in China. The state authorities were saying that there is no terrorism in China. Instead, they talked about Uyghurs and also Tibetans as separatists, as wanting to split the country. After September 11th, within about a month, they started to talk about Uyghurs as terrorists. Mostly, initially, they were talking about Uyghurs that were living abroad, that were living in Pakistan, and that were in some ways affiliated with Al-Qaeda. But it was a very small number of people, maybe a dozen or so. But over time, over the decades, they began to meld together this discourse of separatism with the terrorism discourse. And so by 2009, when there was large-scale violence in Urumqi, they were talking about all incidents of protests, of violence carried out by Uyghurs as a terrorist act or inciting terrorism. And so really they're using a very broad definition of terrorism to assess Uyghur discontent. But you're right to note that by 2013 and 14, there were a few incidents that actually targeted civilians that would meet international definitions of terrorism. My sense is that these are quite small in scale. There's probably been, you know, half a dozen events that rise to the level of international standards for terrorism definition. And the level of death and injury is something similar to what has been experienced in the United States or some Western European countries. So if we're using that as a way of thinking about the threat and response, the response is really disproportionate to the threat. Most of the violence that's happened in Xinjiang is responses to police brutality, it's responses to land seizure. Oftentimes, the people that die in the incidents that are classified as terrorism are the assailants themselves or the protesters themselves. And they're being shot by the police. And the Uyghurs themselves don't have weapons to carry out uh, assaults. It's almost impossible to get guns, which is great, I think. And you know we should have gun control everywhere. So most of the incidents that are, are carried out in China, are are knife attacks or improvised sort of attacks. All of this is to say that the actions of several hundred people, people that actually carried out violence and those that supported them, are being used to target this entire population of people, you know, to send over a million people into these camps.
0: I wanted to ask about What the real cause has been in the rise or, you know, increase of protests and violence over the past two decades? What is it about the nature of what's going on against these Uyghurs and Kazakhs that have motivated them to actually begin protesting, knowing that they probably would face crackdowns?
1: Right. That's a good question. So I think to really understand the violence that's emerged and how all this has come together, we have to go back to the 1990s, which is when China began an Open Up the Northwest campaign, which is how it was described in Chinese, and was specifically trying to integrate the Uyghur region with the rest of the country. And they were doing that through infrastructure building. They were building roads and railroads. And around the same time China was opening up to the West and Eastern China, they were becoming the manufacturer for the world. And so they needed lots of natural resources to drive that economy. And the Xinjiang region, the Uyghur region, has around 20% of Chinese oil, natural gas, an even higher percentage of Chinese coal. And so it was seen as an, an essential way of sort of building the economy of the nation and at the same time integrating the Uyghur population with the rest of the country. Unfortunately, as the development you know, took place in the 90s and then into the 2000s, Uyghurs were largely excluded from the natural resource economy. But probably the primary driver of discontent was the cost of living began to rise. It's a similar dynamic to when, you know, you have a process of gentrification in a poor neighborhood in the city. The people that are, you know, in that place are being displaced because the rents are rising. Uyghurs had the same sort of thing happen to them. The main issue, though, is that they had nowhere to go. They weren't allowed to leave the country. This was their homeland. And so they felt like they were being colonized. And that's really at the heart of how the violence began. In addition to those factors, there's also restrictions on religious practice. There's more recently a move to transform Uyghur language education to Chinese language education. And all of these are sources of contention. Uyghurs just feel like they're sort of no longer fully the authors of their own history, um, that the state has sort of taken over their life.
0: So one of the things you point out in your writings is that many of the people who are in these camps were detained to what you refer to as pre-criminal behavior. So what does this mean and why is it important?
1: Right. Well, there I'm actually quoting a document from the Chinese government that was given to the UN to describe what happens inside the camps. They talk about the people being sent to the camps as those that have committed violations that haven't risen to the level of criminality. So it might be maybe like a a misdemeanor, or but that's, I guess, still a crime in, in U.S. legal discourse. Basically, it's thought crimes or crimes of possession. Or violations of possession. It's having documents in their possession, maybe on their phone or in you know textual documents that are about Uyghur history or Islam. It could be about them practicing their faith, praying too regularly. The way that they talk about it in the legal code, in it, there's a, a legal document that talks about implementing the counterterrorism laws in China, is that if it looks as though the person is intentionally trying to break the law, then they can be criminally tried. But if it looks like they just simply didn't know that it was a crime, then they can be sent to the camps. Um, and there's a lots of uh, sort of specificity in it. If you have five digital copies of forbidden texts, then you can just be sent to the camp. If it's more than five, then you'll be put in prison. And we've also seen since 2017 that around 350,000 people have been uh, put in prison, have been criminally prosecuted in Xinjiang. It's the people that are on top of that, you know, disproportionate criminalization that are being put in the camps for these sort of really kind of a thought crime.
0: So I'd like to turn now to talk about the reaction of the international community to what is taking place in Xinjiang. And I think we are seeing some evolution, particularly over the last year with, uh, I think, more media around the world reporting on the camps and governments taking some actions. And there have been a series of statements by some governments that have been signed then by other governments. And this year, there were countries that supported dueling statements to the United Nations. And there was one by Germany's ambassador uh, to the UN that garnered support from 39 countries that called on China to respect human rights, particularly the rights of persons belonging to religious and ethnic minorities, especially in Xinjiang and Tibet. And and then there was a sort of dueling statement by the Cuban ambassador to the UN. And that was supported by 45 countries. And it was essentially defending China's policies. I think it's still sort of puzzling as to why so many countries are willing to speak out in support of China's practices, particularly if they have no stake or involvement in them. So how do you explain that?
1: Well, I think they do have stakes in a lot of these. Well, maybe not in the actual actions in China, that's true. But they do have a stake in calling out these issues. So over the last 10 years or so, China has really expanded its influence along what it calls the Belt and Road, sometimes referred to as the BRI, the Belt and Road Initiative. And most of the states that are on that development initiative are states in the developing world. And through that development initiative, the Chinese state has really developed a really strong sort of trade relation with a lot of those spaces. Mostly what they're doing is they're building infrastructure in those places. And they're really you know supporting the economies in those places. And so I think for a lot of countries, it's really difficult for them to push back against the Chinese state because they see it as so integral to know, the future of their nation. The other thing that's going on is a lot of Muslim majority states are also not necessarily interested in defending human rights in their own context. I mean, they have a sense of what human rights are, but they don't want to promote their dissidents inside their states to have a, a stronger voice within their own countries. And they would see, I think they see supporting a dissident group or what's seen as a dissident group in China as something that would lead to repercussions for them. But I think it's the trade relations really that are most important here.
0: That leads me to ask whether, you know, if you look at those that signed letters supporting China this year and compared them with those that signed letters last year, some of the countries are different. The composition of countries are different. So there are some countries that signed in the past, but we're not willing to sign a similar letter this year, supporting Chinese practices. And do we have any evidence then that China is in any way retaliating against these countries? Are they taking away some of these positive incentives such as BRI loans? Well, it's,
1: I think, a little too soon to tell, at least from my perspective, in terms of how China is retaliating. My feeling is that part of the issue here is that the sort of leader on this issue has been the United States. So there's been some concern from other nations as to whether or not the Uyghur issue is actually part of a larger sort of trade issue, and that it's part of a kind of bargaining chip in that trade negotiation that the U.S. has been involved with in China. So I think what's happening now is European nations are beginning to take a leadership role. And in the most recent letter that got this larger number of nations on board, it was really coming from Germany, which I think is seen as having a little bit more moral authority when it comes to pushing back against China, to speaking to human rights issues. I think it's seen as a little more neutral relative to China. And I think they also were a bit savvier in how they went about approaching nations to sign the letter. I think they they did it in a way that didn't attract a lot of attention prior to the letter coming out. And so China was, I think, late to responding to it. My hope is that in the future, there will be more coalition building like Germany has done. I mean, they, it wasn't just Germany, it was France and the UK also that were involved. And I think if we can have more Western nations and nations in the developing world taking the lead on this issue, that I think would bode well for moving it into, more into the mainstream.
0: What's going on inside Muslim-majority countries who are not willing to criticize China, at least their governments unwilling to do so? And those that are signing letters, maybe because they want economic benefits from China, But what's happening in the civil society groups in countries like Indonesia, Malaysia, and Turkey? Is there a greater awareness of what is happening in Xinjiang? Are there any efforts on their part to voice their concerns about how these Muslim adherents are being treated in China?
1: Yeah, there is some movement there. And like I was already saying, a lot of these Muslim majority nations are
0: reluctant to take a strong
1: stand because of the trade issues, because the leadership in Muslim majority nations are really working as allies with the Chinese. On the grassroots level, though, you know, among people that are now becoming aware of what's happening on the ground, there is more movement. So we've seen mass protests in Bangladesh, in Malaysia and Indonesia. and and some in Turkey as well, though there's still more work to be done in Turkey. So there is that sort of grassroots pressure that's beginning to build. I think, though, that they lack some power to actually affect change in most cases. One of the issues is that the mass media in those spaces is often controlled in some ways. And then on top of that, there's a sort of suspicion or a counter narrative that's emerging that's coming from China, but it's also coming from some people on the sort of far left in sort of international sphere that what's happening in Xinjiang is simply is not true and is simply a narrative that's being seeded by the CIA or the National Endowment for Democracy, part of a regime change, a a way of sort of containing China and splitting China, uh, which is a very old narrative um, in international relations that has come from China. There's no evidence of that being true, but I think that some People in Muslim-majority states are concerned that that could be what's happening. There's a a lot of concern about the U.S. as a sort of a proponent of Islamophobia. We've seen that through the current administration in the way that it's banned Muslim immigrants from coming to the U.S. from certain states. It's also not supported refugee resettlement. So there's some some reasons why people would be reluctant to support what they see as a a sort of U.S.-led initiative.
0: Late last year, the United States started to take some measures against Chinese policies in Xinjiang, and we've seen uh, dozens now of Chinese companies involved in these atrocities from purchasing American-made products. Uh, There's been sanctions imposed on some high-ranking Chinese officials who have been deemed responsible for creating these camps. So how do you assess the effectiveness of these actions?
1: Well, they have had some effects. I mean, the first effect is probably a kind of moral effect. It's a major state in the world standing up to you know, crimes against humanity, which is at this point, uh, you know, the evidence is overwhelming that that is what's happening. So that's important, just sort of at a, from a values point of view. But it has had real effects on some of the tech companies in particular and some of the manufacturers in terms of the values of their company, the economic value really falling. One company in particular, uh, a company called MugV, was planning to go public in the Hong Kong Stock Exchange and has since you know, not been able to do that because it's been placed on this entities list. So it, it does have a sharp effect. At the same time, most of the, these companies, most of their business is not with the US or they're not necessarily dependent on trade from the US, they're still thriving in a lot of ways as well. They're still sort of leading the world when it comes to some of these technologies like face recognition, which they developed in Xinjiang and other places. And they're still the manufacturer for the world in a lot of ways. So it's not necessarily effective in stopping these companies from exploiting Uyghurs. It isn't an important first step. I think what needs to come next is we need to have greater coalition building with European states, with the G10, with states in the global south to also take a stand. At the same time, especially for these poor nations, it's difficult because they are so dependent on China trade. So there needs to be new mechanisms, I think, put in place to help facilitate it, new ways of supporting those economies. It's an initial first step. I think it is important, though, that the U.S. Start by making sure that we are doing best practices that we are not supporting this sort of atrocity, and so by putting moratoriums on trade coming from the u s to these places, I think that is the the first and best approach. but it's not enough. We need to have more coalition building
0: so other than putting forward this letter, which you correctly noted of course, is not only by Germany but also France and the u k were involved is there much that Europe is doing human rights is definitely an important issue on the EU's agenda with China, but are the Europeans doing enough? They're conducting human rights dialogues, some of these countries individually, and I think the EU overall with China, but what kind of an impact does that have and what should Europe be doing?
1: So I think Europe should be doing more than it has. And I think we're beginning to see people wanting to take that next step i think there's been a lot of skepticism on the part of european lawmakers and diplomats as to the veracity of the reports again they thought that it's it's coming primarily from the us and they suspected there was ulterior motives there But I think as the evidence is made clearer to them, I think they will be willing to take a stronger stand. It's a hard thing to do. China is a huge economy. It's the number two economy in the world and is so important, so embedded in so many aspects of social life, of economic life. And so pushing back on it is hard. And so there's a, a kind of cost that has to be made. You have to have a kind of political will to make these things happen. But I would say that, you know, similar kinds of sanctions that the U.S. has done is definitely something that the Europeans should consider. There should also be, I think, a a more intensified campaign to think about relocating the Olympics, which are coming up in 2022.
0: Well, that is an issue that has been raised, obviously, by several groups. No country has said whether they would, in fact, boycott the Olympics. but. You know, that brings me to the question of what does China really care about? Because the international community, what has been done so far, China doesn't like to be named in shame, but I don't think that it is enough or anywhere near enough to change China's actual practices in Xinjiang. And the Olympics perhaps something that could. I'm not certain. We are way beyond the days when governments where particularly the United States were able to put pressure on China, for example, to release somebody who was being held. So individuals we were able to have an impact on. But huge policies like these camps in Xinjiang that's affecting millions of people, I'm really not very optimistic about how we really influence China's behavior. So the Olympics is perhaps one example. Are there other things that you think would really make China actually shut down these camps and revise their approach to dealing with these issues, which from their perspective, they're worried about instability and extremism and terrorism. Can they be forced to take a different approach?
1: Well, One of the reasons why I think the Olympics conversation is important is because it will communicate with the Chinese people, with common people in China, that something is seen as seriously wrong in China where I think as so far, most of the sanctions, media coverage of Xinjiang has been seen as, as simply biased as something that's being generated by the US government in order to contain China, It's you know, but not true in fact. And I think if there's a broad enough coalition of people saying that they're so deeply concerned about what's happening in Xinjiang, that they're not willing to you know, host a cultural event in China, I think that will have a stronger impact. It may not be enough, but I think communicating to sort of the general public, is one of the ways that we could begin to really shift the discourse and, and shift the mechanisms of this system. Another thing that needs to happen along with that is we need to have broader transparency as to why these companies are being put on the list. Usually the announcement is simply made and there's not a clear sort of unpacking of the evidence as to why they need to be put on the list. And so I think that's something that the U.S. government could do, but it's also something that you know an independent sort of commission or something could do. So I think Coalition building that would help to sort of move it away from a U.S.-centered approach to one that's more of a global approach, I think, would help to sort of shift the narrative in the world and also, I think, in China. At the same time, China has such a strong presence when it comes to controlling media, when it comes to sort of gaslighting the narrative around what's happening in Xinjiang. They often talk about it as poverty alleviation, as re-education, so it's a seen as a positive thing inside China and really pulling back the curtain on how forced labor works, on how the camp space themselves operate as extreme carceral space. That's something that has to be done, I think, in order to really expose what's happening on the ground. And it is a big project, you're right, uh, to do that. It is really hard to know exactly what would make China shift on this.
0: Well, I'm glad that you're working on it. It's an incredibly important topic. And I hope that in the Months and perhaps maybe not even years, but uh, we'll see how much effort and time it takes. But I do hope that the end result is to force the Chinese to release these people and to adopt a more internationally acceptable approach to dealing with whatever threats they see. I think the international community could help China share with them best practices for dealing with even terrorist activity to the extent that it exists in China, which I share your view, I think, is still rather limited. So any final thoughts for us, Darren? Well, I think one thing that's really important
1: to keep in mind in all of this is the the importance of sort of the general Chinese public in pushing back on this, in sort of speaking to it. We need to have more Chinese voices that are acknowledging what's happening on the ground, and that are wanting to stop it. And so we have to always not allow Xinjiang to be used as a lever or as a, a catalyst for anti-Chinese racism, which is on the rise pretty much everywhere in the world, particularly in the time of the coronavirus. So one of the ways I think we could push back on that is by sort of amplifying the Han voices that are also not in favor of, of this system and want to see it stop. So. That's just to say, I don't want to see this area of the world, despite its seriousness, be used as, as that kind of a lever.
0: We've been talking with Dr. Darren Byler, who's a postdoctoral fellow at the Center for Asian Studies at the University of Colorado Boulder. Thanks so much for joining us today.
1: Oh, happy to be here.